data and analytics are completely changing the way IT operations is done. As we move applications to the edge, the role of data becomes even more important. In this episode, we talk to Andy Mann from Splunk on the changing nature of IT operations as we move to edge and real-time data. What is the future of AI ops? To know this and more, listen to this podcast. In this episode of Swimstream's podcast, I am with my cloud buddies, Andy Mann and Simon Crosby. Andy and Simon, introduce yourself. This is going to be a great podcast discussing distributed systems, real-time data, and how IT operations can benefit from it. Welcome to the show, Andy and Simon. Yeah, sure, Chris. So Andy Mann is my name. I am the Chief Technology Advocate at Splunk. Uh, so my background, I'm a global uh, technology executive, as you can tell by my accent. Uh, a lot of time in Australia, originally working for banks, insurance companies, government agencies in IT, doing IT ops, you know, night shift programming, that sort of stuff. Um, graduated into a vendor world eventually. I've worked in five different continents. Um, and now I'm a strategist and uh, an advocate for Splunk, but also an advocate for my customers to get changes made in our products. I also have with me Simon Crosby from SWIM, who is going to be my partner in crime. Simon, do you want to introduce yourself and talk briefly about what you're doing? Sure thing. I'm Chief Troublemaker at, uh, at SWIM.ai, and uh, it's great to be here with you too. And uh, yeah, my background is startups. I've done a bunch from Hypervisors app and now SWIM.ai, which is continuous intelligence. Let us start by setting some context. Lay out the landscape as we move towards a highly distributed infrastructure spanning multiple cloud providers, edge, IoT devices everywhere. What are some of the trends you are seeing? And how IT operations is changing in this distributed world compared to a more centralized cloud world we had for the past decade or so? Sure, I'll, I'll dive in quickly. Uh, and yeah, some of the major changes are coming out of the, just the idea of cloud computing, right? So complexity to start with. We're distributing our applications uh, using component applications, composable applications, um, lots of arm's length interfaces. It's very opaque. Can't really see what's going on. Lots of unowned systems. So I mentioned cloud, but serverless, function as a service, API endpoints, stuff like that. It's also a lot faster. So agile delivery is the standard. So rapid change driven by continuous everything, DevOps, agile. And I think one of the most important changes in this landscape is that it's customer facing. So for IT people, we used to sit in the back office and we would never really interface with customers. Now it's all customer facing, real time business, online, cloud connected and global. There's some of the things I think are changing the architecture. Let me add to Andy, I think um, spot on. But the other thing that I see is that IT is now chartered with an additional component, which is data delivery. And so, you know, we used to, start, we used to in the days of Splunk starting, it was just logs, right? Yeah. We knew where those, 
those were, but now every physical product has a CPU yeah. and they all have a lot to say. And every organization is trying to make decisions faster. And so that requires organizations to deal with large amounts of data always. And so this responsiveness to data becomes a charter for IT, which is, you know, so I hate to coin a term, data ops, because there's so many of them. But really, this is about making sure that IT can always keep the business on its toes. This brings me to the next question. Data is the new oil in many facets of IT. What is the role played by data in IT operations? How can operations take advantage of real-time data to drive towards a more autonomic management? The situation is clearly can be seen from the needs we have today, especially in this COVID-19 driven world. People couldn't go into their workplace and work on the systems. So they have to work from their home. Not only that systems are distributed, even people are distributed. I feel that real-time data can help here and uh, it can help augment IT operations. Well, let's lay out the landscape. How do you see everything uh, trending up? Yeah, Krish, it's really important the, 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 what, you're, what you're talking about there is the fundamentally different architectures and environments because of COVID and stuff. Um, some of the techniques we can use are still the same, um, but yeah, Simon said it very well, data will set us free, right? Um, data is the new oil, data is the new water, data is gold, uh, data will set us free. Data is everything at the moment. Um, the thing though is that the tools that we use for the old monoliths, for the mainframe-based applications, very predictable workloads, uh, fully in control, on-premises, fundamentally different in environments and architectures. We made up all this stuff to try and figure out what was happening. So we made up things like uh, APM, Application Performance Management, synthetic transaction, bytecode instrumentation, in, in, you know, injected transactions. These, I want to call them fake uh, activity to pretend like a customer so we know what's happening. We don't need to do that anymore. We've got real data from real systems and real customers. So one of the big, big changes for IT ops is that real-time data is, is enabling us to have real-time reactions with autonomous systems. So taking threats, taking events, taking alerts, um, even if there's thousands of them because they're coming from these distributed systems, and using machines to understand that data and process it quickly and respond to known knowns with known good process. Um, so, you know, if, if, if a certain problem happens and your response to that, for example, is always to uh, delete the container and redrive it, for example, reinstantiate it. Why not use automation for doing that? I mean, you want to get to root causes if you can, but you also just want to fix the problem really quickly because your customers are waiting. So automation has to take those known knowns and start to do known good process based around those known knowns. I think we're going to get to a lot faster and more agile business because of that. Let me add on to that. I guess a view which is that data is not the new oil. Okay. And for two reasons. First of all, it's ephemeral. So the value of data is short-lived. You can't just stick it somewhere and it'll have the same value in a year. Second, it's infinite. 
So um, it's boundless. And so as we move to this new era, we have to process data on the fly. And whether or not we keep it is really about compliance. But in general, we can throw away the original data because God, there's so much of it. Um, so we have to process streaming data on the fly, analyze, learn, and predict from it on the fly. And then maybe we'll get, you know, useful insights or heuristics, whatever it happens to be, responses from that. But the key thing is that the raw data may not be of core use in the long term. Um, and so the key transformations that we have to go through are transforming algorithms from notions of computing on finite data sets to computing on infinite data. So how do you how do you learn about things? Um, we also have to transform our notions of what truth is. You know, databases, traditionally, say, relational database, would store some notion of truth. Buses have engines. Um, but, you know, is a truck near an inspector? Yeah, near is a soft thing. And it's distributional and statistics and so on. And so the notion of truth maybe you know hard to define it may not be very useful and really learning from data to adequately represent the real world to an application is based on not only data sources but also the context in which they find themselves it's a fascinating world yeah so i mean i think it's a really important point the the sources of truth and what is truth um, insufficient data sources will give you a very unbalanced perspective on what's going on in your world. For example, if you're, all you're looking at, at is, is infrastructure, any given piece of infrastructure could be up and running and perfectly responding at any given time. But if the application is getting in a spin, then your customer experience has gone down the tubes. So yeah, lots of data being able to see the real experience and even one spike in an online customer facing business, one spike affecting one customer could lose your day's revenue for you. If you're not getting all the data, and like you say, analyzing it in real time, then you're not getting that truth. It's really important. I, I totally agree. I, I, in fact, uh, we will discuss a little more in detail about it. And, uh, you also raised an interesting point, Andy, about uh, uh, taking care of the known unknowns by indulging in automation. And uh, we were later in the podcast, we will also discuss about uh, unknown unknowns of uh, uh, made famous by Donald Rumsfeld, but uh, which is the true, which has been existing You guys forever. are dating, you guys are dating yourselves. <laughs> <laughs> Going back to the era of Rumsfeld, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, I just can't avoid uh, Donald Rumsfeld's name every time I talk about unknown unknowns. So, but uh, Simon, you did uh, raise a very important point about uh, rethinking the idea of uh, data itself, like it's infinite and uh, you need to handle it immediately. That sort of brings up my next question, which is what kind of infrastructure is needed to handle this kind of data? And how do we ensure that uh, that infrastructure and the uh, rela uh, relationship we can bring in through that infrastructure will provide us so let me have a, the first crack at this one because I'm really interested in Andy's um, response 
because they recently purchased Streamlio, right? So if you go back to original Splunk, it was all about collecting tons of log data from everything and then analyzing it later, which is store and then analyze. And I think what we're saying is the trend is towards analyze and react. And store if you have to, but whatever, who cares? So we're moving to this era where there's infinite data, you can't afford to store it all, and you have to respond fast. And the interesting thing for me in Splunk's acquisition of Streamio was really their, their recognition, I think, that you know this notion of PubSub and, and streaming, event streaming, is critical as a transformation in terms of how we are dealing with data. Um, whether it be for APM reasons or IT or whether it's my product out in the world, you know, there is just so much data and I have to be able to learn and learn on the fly. There's another big change coming. And that is this. Every time I reach out to a database, it takes milliseconds, tens of milliseconds. Okay. That is a hundred million times slower than my CPU. Wait up. Let me say that again. It's a hundred million times slower than my CPU. It's totally stupid, right? So the cloud is all about REST and databases. And oh my God, it's slow. And if you want to learn on data on the fly, you can't be slow. So you can't use databases. Andy, go. Yeah, look, I, look, you're spot on, mate. It's really interesting. I, I, would, I would push back a little and say that there is use for data long-term in terms of things like investigation and learning. So machine learning specifically, using aged data to do training on AI and ML, absolutely critical. But you're right. Splunk acquired Streamlio significantly because we realized that business is real time. I mean, and data is real time. Yeah, we came out of an environment where we take log data. You mentioned before, exactly right. Just logs, and we'd use it for investigation after a problem occurred. You know, and again, in the old world of not online businesses and of these monoliths and so forth, that was actually okay because we had weird things like an online day and an offline batch process window. You know, you talk about aging people, talk about batch processing one day. That's not a thing. Um, actually, it is a thing, but I'm, I'm not going to go there. What is really happening is this online real-time expectation. It's driven by consumerization of IT. It's driven by con you know, consumers using cloud services to access things. Everything's always on, always available, 24-7 globally. So we can't do this store and investigate thing all the time anymore. We still need to do storage to investigate problems after they happen. But you know what we really want to do? is react to the problem right away, like you said, Simon. Fix it straight away. If it, automation doesn't fix it because it's a known problem, then we need to get the right people, maybe get the right people out of bed, maybe get the developer who wrote that code segment to attend to the application failure. And you know, this is fundamentally different from the old world of, well, send a service desk ticket to someone the next day, right? Service desk tickets never solved a problem. People working on the problem solve the problem. So that's where they need real-time data. They need this streaming data. And I'll tell you, Simon, the other thing that I, that, this is why I love doing podcasts with you, always make me think about stuff. Um, the other thing is that you're never going to be able to predict what's happening in future if you don't have data in real time to start with. If all you're doing is looking at yesterday's data, 
you're going to be able to predict problems that happened yesterday. You've got to look at data right now to predict what's going to happen today or tomorrow. So that's going to be that's a really important part of how we're changing the way we use data and why how we're changing storage and access and all that stuff. I'll give you a cool example in the security domain, which is also important for Splunk. It's about half of your revenue. Um, what Swim does build, I guess you can call them smart digital twins of things from their data on the fly. And so a security application, which we worked on with a large oil and gas company, um, relies on things, digital personalities of things, knowing better than humans when they are behaving weirdly. And so the notion of security is more based on somebody who is an expert in that thing, understanding whether or not its behavior or its behavior in a context of other things on the network or whatever is weird or not, rather than, you know, spitting out logs and hoping that somebody else can analyze it later. It's very, very interesting. Yeah. So you, it's almost as though the artifact comes along when you first purchase it with an idea of some notion of tolerances or, you know, normal, normal behavior, which makes it easier to spot when it's uh, out of sync. Analytics is fast becoming a critical component for most organizations. This is becoming even more interesting with data getting processed at the edge. We have both application analytics and IT operations analytics process at the edge. Uh, the applications collect the data and they do analytics at the edge. That's a known uh, thing. But uh, IT operations are also collecting the data about various systems at the edge network, and they are doing analytics to understand what is happening with those systems. With the low footprint at the edge, can the same infrastructure be tapped to handle both the applications analytics as well as the analytics needed for IT operations of the systems in the edge network? Let me jump in. Um, so edge and IoT, typically generates a massive data volume. Um, so it's a lot more than just your iPhone, right? It's, and people think about Edge and IoT, they think about their, their Nest doorbell or, or something like that. And, that. and that's part of it for sure. But in a commercial sense, mostly it's this industrial IoT. And it is, it's generating massive data volumes. It's part of my current thesis, by the way, that uh, humans are bad with data, are bad with numbers, and we're bad with scale. We're not, we're not capable of dealing with big numbers and, and stuff like that. It just as a species, you know, to start with, numbers are just a made-up construct anyway, but I, I won't go into my, my entire stump speech. But bottom line, it means we've got all this data and we're not very good at processing it. And you're right, Krish, getting it all from the edge into a central repository, it's not really going to be highly valuable. That's a lot of money in terms of bandwidth. It's time in terms of getting it up to a central processing facility of some kind, you know, the other thing is with this industrial IoT data especially, it's just not that interesting. There's exceptions that are interesting. And that's what you want to know about. So, look, Chris, I agree. I think that, I think what you're saying is that there's going to be processing at the edge and that's going to be important, but we can't do it today. And that's, that's where I'm sort of at at the moment. Yeah, filter and forward, uh, process and forward, analyze and forward meaning 
or just analyze and react locally. Uh, but we're not there yet. We've got a long way to go. I mean, so I mean, you're deep into this at the moment. Uh, I'm, where, I'm, tell me where I'm wrong. <laughs> so um, you're right. There are huge problems related to data volumes and and edge. So let me let's take it from the beginning. My view of edge is it can't be a place. Okay, because or maybe it's a place if you know the physical network where all the data is coming from in some industrial setting. But in the context of say a mobile device, it can move around. And so you know, edge varies, right? And so where I'm at is going to change all the time. And um, so you can't determine edge as a place to compute. Edge is where data comes from. But how you compute on data, yeah, that's a different thing. And in general, we want to use cloud-native abstractions, okay? So modern applications are being built using cloud-native stuff. So for me, edge means where I first get to pick apart the packet and get my fingers on the bits and make sense of what's in there. It doesn't mean physical edge. Now, physical edge is useful if you happen to own it or you know, you, ha you know something about where, where the user is or where the data is coming from, you can do something. But in general, it's, it's not easy. So edge is where data comes from. Most edge computing actually is about using the cloud and cloud abstractions. But you're absolutely right that we can't afford to store all this data in databases. Um, let me give you a very simple example. The city of Palo Alto generates about four terabytes a day just from its traffic lights. If I use AWS Lambda to sync that into a cloud, um, I need 5,000 Lambda instances <laughs> and I can't afford it, okay? It's this thing's running at, it's about 6,000 bucks a month, mostly with my Lambda instances sitting idle. Here's why, every event, and there are about 30,000 um, events per minute. Um, every event causes a Lambda instance to wake up. I have to find my code, load it, and then run the code. And the code then reaches out to a database and sticks something in a database, and then we're done, right? Cool. That's about 200 milliseconds. Okay. That is 10 million times slower than a Raspberry Pi. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, Let's just get rid of this silly notion that REST and databases are our friends. They're cool. They give us this abstraction, but they're very slow when it comes to dealing with data. I, lo I love yeah. that speed calculation, Simon. That's just, that's, <laughs> that cracks me up. You, to think of things in that context where we're processing real time. I mean, you know what real time actually means. So, yeah, that's, that's a, I, I just love that metric. So, so Edge necessarily involves some notion of of, you know, to be able to deal with these volumes of data, we have to be able to sift through it in memory at CPU speeds without touching database, which inherently leads us down the path of stateful computing, not stateless. We have to be able to remember where we were and what the value was when we last processed. And, you know, that's kind of the reactor paradigm. Swim is an implementation of the actor model which is vastly superior to basic reactive, but 
listen, we got to be able to deal with stateful computing um, and deal with things in memory at CPU and memory speeds before we reach out to a database. And that's fundamental. Yeah. And just one other thing uh, that you made me think of, um, you talk about these traffic lights are a great example. I think about turbines in, in energy plants and stuff. The thing is that when, when everything's going well, and this is true of most IT systems generally, when everything's going well, your data is pointless. When everything's going well, your traffic light data is red, yellow, green, yellow, it's red. It's not it's even that. It's not even that. It's like, I'm still red. I'm yeah, actually, red. yeah. Yes. <laughs> and it's even worse than that. It's like my voltage between relay X and relay Y is 3.7 volts. Exactly. And then you've got to figure it out, right? And you, and you get that reported back to you a million times a day exactly the same way. So why would you, why would you take time and money, as you point out, to fire up an instance to store the data, which you're never going to use? You want to put cardinality into your data, make it meaningful, get different data points that have meaning. If you're having the same data point over and over again from a turbine or from a traffic light, you're not getting meaning out of it. So yeah, yeah that's, and, like, so, that's and really meaning, important. by the way, is not just red or yellow. So meaning is this: um, your bus is approaching you, which inherently is relational in the sense that you have a particular interest in that particular bus and it is approaching. And every single time I get a GPS update for the bus, I have to recalculate nearness to you. And so the calculation is inherent in the, the receipt and processing of the data, but yeah. just making sense of it on the fly. And, I, and you know, Simon, I've always had a problem with the idea of eventual consistency. I think that's what you sort of touched on there when you're talking about, uh, and literally just last night, and I won't tell you what system I was using. I was doing some work on my phone. This is a, a work system, a collaboration tool, right? So I'm doing some stuff on my phone. And I think, oh, I just need a bigger screen for a moment. So I go away and I get my laptop out. And the data I was working on on my phone is not on my laptop. It's meant to be cloud-based. And I guess they're working with eventual consistency. But you know what? I'm working in a real-time world. And I want my data in real time. And so okay. this is I'm there. I'm there, but. Okay. I'm there, but. In general, when you're observing the real world, when you start to observe it, it's kind of arbitrary. So if I, you know, miss the odd red light or odd green light, it's kind of, it's immaterial. What I want is the notion of having learned how red lights and green lights behave in this area of Palo Alto and then being able to predict, right? Yes. So I don't want transactional, all the weight of transactional processing, which is required if I stick everything in database, for example. What I want is some notion of eventual consistency relative to a model. Okay. I don't, uh, yeah, sure. You want, makes, I, it really makes sense to me that, you know, I don't want eventual consistency of my bank account balance. You know, I want it, right? But eventual consistency when I'm observing ah. um, processes is really okay. Yeah, because different data has different value at different times. I mean, to your point, old data can be, in, can be pointless. Uh, sometimes it can be useful for training. Different data has different value, but also, yeah, different times. Let's shift gears a little bit with... Known unknowns, you can use certain rules, 
use automation and probably use human beings to sort of find problems and solve it. But there are unknown unknowns, which many human beings may not notice. So we may have to tap into machine learning or deep learning to handle these unknown unknowns or to even realize that there could be some problem which we don't even understand. AI ops is becoming the marketing term for all these uh, new technologies that are taking advantage of machine learning and deep learning from the machine data to sort of understand what's going to happen and make predictions. What is the current state of AI ops? What are some of the efficiencies organizations can gain by using AI ops? Yeah, look, AI ops is, it, it stands for artificial intelligence for IT operations. It was originally algorithmic IT operations. Um, you know, it's, it's still not AI. Uh, I don't know that anything is really AI in the way that it is described in literature. Um, I think of AI ops more in my mind as augmented IT operations. It's about using machines to do the routine, mundane, uh, you know, process complexity, uh, deal with large data sets, crunch numbers, while you're letting humans do creative things, innovate, use intuition. You mentioned, Chris, the idea of an unknown unknown. You use your understanding of the world and previous you know, occurrences and errors. I did this for years and years as an IT operator, problem solving, troubleshooting, a unique novel problem you use your existing experience to try and understand what that is about. And you make, as a human, you make leaps of logic that machines will never make. And so this is where humans are really important still to be part of that, not just the troubleshooting and the problem solving, but prevention again, to prevent it happening again, right? Because after all, a known, an unknown unknown is just an unknown you haven't met yet. Right? You just haven't figured out how to fix it. So have AI do the... I am with you. I totally agree with you. AI ops is not going to replace human beings, but it shifts them from trying to figure out uh, what is happening from large swaths of data to a more supervisory role where, where uh, the missions make predictions and human sort of like ensure that the predictions and automations are working well. So humans still have a role, but I'm looking at AI ops from the point of view of augmenting what humans can do and putting them at a supervisory level. I think so, so too. I think there's a, a very interesting angle to add to what Andy said, which is that machines ought to help us find clues. So for example, if you know, I have two sources of data and they happen to be correlated. That's really interesting, right? It might help me make the, the, the leap to understanding what the problem is. Um, if I have many sources of data, like the temperature is slightly high and the coolant value is slightly low and something else, it might be a clue as to the reason or at least to suggest that I need to do something before the engine blows up. Right, so having automation or machines deal with data on the fly relative to models to learn, analyze, learn, and predict on the fly 
gives us the ability to understand the real world in the context of sophisticated models yeah. and to learn about uh, more sophistication on the as they go forward. That's a separate um, discussion, perhaps. But certainly, to understand the world in the context of of models that we know, and that can accelerate human decision making. Also, with regards to grave failure, I don't expect machine to say, "Hey, something is going to fail and everything is going to go down." But machines could point out that conditions are leading to something abnormal, something that is not uh, looking good. So I think from that angle, you're, you're using the, uh, such uh, machine learning and deep learning algorithms could help human beings to find those problems which they wouldn't have otherwise noticed. So the notion of predicted to be within or or whatever it happens to be, is it requires continuous refining, continuous calculation. It has to be updated every time new data arrives um, and, and is automatically contextual in the sense that should con it, you know, any prediction involves multiple data points, right? So the states of lots of things um, and it's complex and it has to happen fast in memory on the fly. And that context is a really interesting area where AI ops really does play, right? Because you can learn over time what data sources you go to to do investigation. When a problem occurs, application slowdown or failure or an edge point device uh, drops off a network or something, whatever is happening, you normally go through a number of steps. Some of that's in a run book, for example, um, Machine learning can understand to start with, where do I go normally? When a problem happens, where do I go and find more data? And proactively go and collect that data and present it back to you. So your investigation becomes easier to start with. That's one area where you know, machine learning and AI can learn from the behaviors in the past and start to automate the activity in the future. This is even before we get to things like predictive analytics, which prevents a problem. We can even just do you know, reactive analytics, which helps you solve the problem faster using that learning. I agree with you. In fact, I'm working on a stealth project uh, with someone where we use machine learning to set the thresholds. So in that sense, uh, machine learning is helping in, in uh, setting thresholds in a more react, uh, reactive way. So uh, machine learning plays a role in that reactive part of the story too. Yeah, and then you get into things like dynamic thresholding. I remember from back in the day setting thresholds, static thresholds on mainframe systems because we could. They were predictable, pretty static, you know, normal workloads. But with cloud and with online consumers, anything can spike your, your systems. You might get a, a positive tweet from an influencer unexpectedly on Facebook. All of a sudden, you've got 100,000 hits on your website. Um, so to be able to use machines to deal with that complexity and deal with it really quickly. Yeah, that's exactly. And you, you can't be static though. You've got to be able to understand patterns. This is where again, machines are really awesome because they'll look at patterns and they'll adjust your thresholds in real time for what your business cycle looks like. So in the AI context or machine learning, I'm not a huge fan of these monster models. And I'll make it clear in the following way. If I ask you, Andy, if you like blueberry muffins, you know the answer. 
okay? And how do you know the answer? Well, you're not going to phone your mom, okay? You know the answer because you've tried a bunch and you've learned. And so if I can construct a digital twin of you um, that learns that notion of like ruby muffins over time, then I can construct kind of a, an unsupervised model of learning where a digital representation of you learns the right thing. Okay, now blueberry muffins are a silly example, but for example, if you go to traffic.simulator.ai, you see every intersection, say in Palo Alto, is predicting its own future. How? Well, based on its own sensor data plus its neighborhood. So a very small number of inputs, maybe a thousand or so, and regular prediction, um, taking guesses, seeing what the outcome is, and then back propagating the result. Okay, so I think digital representations of things can learn, take guesses, and back propagate and improve their uh, their projections. Yeah, look, so it's an interesting notion that I I learned many many years ago. It was actually a billboard in the underground in London when I was living there many years ago. Uh, that were tried to that refuted the premise that travel broadens the mind, and it did in a really interesting way. You know, travel broadens the mind. Everyone knows that, right? You go to a, I go to a different country. I go to Greece, say, and I go to Athens, and I meet some people, and I learn new things about them and their culture. And I go back to my home, and I, I go, I know all about Greece now. And in actual fact, I probably know even less if I'm a a really thinking person, I realize I've gone to Greece, I've met these people, I've learned some new things, like how much more new things are there that I still don't know? But a machine doesn't think that way. A machine thinks I have all the inputs, what I have decided, regardless of bias, and it could be a bias from, like you say, 900 times this happens, but then one time it happens differently. A machine can't figure that out. That's where the human side has to come back in. It's a really good point, Simon. And, and I think bias is inescapable. We should just accept that what we'll do is build bias in because we're humans and we're stupid. And then we have processes for rapidly detecting, that is have um, ways in which, whatever, it could be human-based, ways to take the feedback and modify the algorithms, right? So AI ops becomes really about quickly reacting to maybe the failure of algorithms too. That's where I want to introduce the chaos monkey approach to mitigating AI bias. Well, just like in the case of uh, chaos monkey approach to IT operations, what I'm saying is introduce bias intentionally into the system, see what happens, and then take steps to mitigating the propagation of the bias. I think that way we can really understand how bias is being propagated and put uh, gates to stop it before the algorithm learns or inherits all those biases. I think that's a great idea. Yeah. Uh, I really think there's a lot to be had there. By the way, one thing you could do with a truly random chaos monkey is do something which is non-biased and then detect the difference between a biased outcome and a not, right? That'd be really cool. Yeah. We are getting close to the end of the podcast. I usually ask my guests to make some predictions about some of the trends they will see in the next three to five years, with the future, especially with the future relying on IT operations, uh, tapping into real-time data. I think uh, we are going to see some interesting trends. 
the infrastructure is getting highly distributed people are getting highly distributed the, we are getting large swaths of data coming in and we are we might uh, tap into machine learning or deep learning to really make sense of all these data uh, in our IT operations so what are some of the trends you are seeing um, in the next 3 to 5 years Gee, uh, I'll, I'll start just by saying that, that I, I hate making predictions. I'm so wrong so often. Um, but, uh, you know, and the other thing is, by the way... Hey, three, wait, don't you do strategy for Splunk? I, I do, but hey, failure is always an option, right? You just got to fail fast, fail small, fail cheap and fail forward. Um, now, you don't have to be right all the time, but I'll, I'll, I will tell you that I think three to five years looks a lot like today. Um, Amara's law is a really interesting one. You know, we, we, we overestimate the impact of technology in the, in the near term, but we underestimate it in the long term. Um, in the near term, we're going to look a lot like we are today. Uh, lots of composable applications dealing with cloud computing, dealing with distributed systems, lots of work from home. Uh, I think work from home will grow. Uh, I think a lot of organizations are saying they're not going to go back until June 2021 or even further. So work from home and remote work changes architectural landscapes. It also, as we've discussed, it changes security landscapes. It changes how you process data. Um, so I think we're going to get more capability. I'm not going to try and predict in five to 10 years, but more capability to distribute processing and provide meaningful data insights without centralized processing, I think will absolutely be a key. Automating even more of the, uh, of the IT ops mundane work. You know what? I think we're going to get automation more into the development side as well. So when we start thinking about composable applications, I think in the, and then again, but maybe not three to five years, but maybe five to 10 years, the idea of low code, no code and self-building applications will be interesting to see. Um, you know, I don't, I, I have no crystal ball, Chris. Um, I can take guesses and they're as good as I can guess at the moment. I think what will really happen is something radical will change in about five years' time because these are our cycles and this conversation will look like an anachronism. Yeah, yeah I think I, I sort of agree with you uh, on that. And uh, in fact, uh, the compo composable applications is something which, I, which I, I've been talking about for some time now. Yeah, and uh, I also I want to use the term disposable applications as we use microservices functions as a service and or even small code coming in through the low code, no code uh, kind of uh, platforms. I think uh, we, we should uh, ch change, uh, use the same pets as a schedule mindset with applications too. build applications, use it. You, you should be uh, able to dispose it and build it again if you want, if your needs change. I think we should have that mindset and start architecting our applications for that. I think uh, eventually, if not in the next three to five years, I think eventually, We'll head to that kind of a future. That's my thinking. Simon? Hey, what's not to uh, like in what you both said? Ultimately, for me, it's about data. And um, we need to do the same with data, Krish. So data needs to not be this thing which we store forever or think we can store forever. It needs to be something which you rapidly digest and turn into insights. And maybe you'll persist the insights because you can use them later or over some time. But data as this thing which everybody wants to keep forever, that has to change. We just can't deal with this. Simon, I have a follow-up question to you. 
I really understand the value of uh, uh, processing the data, get, getting the insights, and then getting rid of the data. There is no need to store it. I totally see the value there. But as we get more and more insights, as our knowledge get better, we if we come back and look at the historical data, maybe we will get much better insights. So from that angle, don't you think retaining the historical data will be of some value? You know, people always raise that as a potential objection. But the question that I ask in response is, and do you have the time or the energy to go back and look at stuff in the past? And maybe you would for a month or something. Sure, keep a month of data. I don't have a problem with it. But, you know, or a year or whatever it is. But years and years and years, that's ridiculous. So um, it's, it's problematic, but it's problematic not only for that reason. If you tie your notion, if you tie your concept of analysis to the data that's on a disk, you inevitably end up doing things too slowly. So I'll give you an example of big data. And this is one I've mentioned to Andy before. We're currently dealing with four petabytes per day for a large mobile provider on the, and the data comes at us from Apache Pulsar, which is Streamlio. Um, that will be more than 20 petabytes per day. Okay, by the end of the summer. That's just unbelievable amount of information. And you could not afford to store it. Okay, this organization was paying millions of dollars a month to store data. And so what they really want is to be able to maximize the connection quality between mobile devices and their network. And as long as they can do that on day by day basis, they are achieving their goal. And there is literally no way they could ever go back and deal with that volume of data. So it's a good example for sure, it's bleeding edge, um, but it's a good example of where we all will be in five years time when everything has a CPU and everything is continually updating itself. And it's, it's a, to a degree, it's a question of, um, it's, a, it's almost an actuarial discussion, right? Yeah, I could spend a lot of money to store a lot of data for a long time and I might get meaning for, out of it later. I'll give you one very concrete example of that, by the way. Uh, recently, we had a major cybersecurity incident for a large vendor, which you all know about, you all read about, and I won't name check. Um, I'm not into public shaming, not a Splunk customer, uh, who got breached. They were breached for a good nine months before the hack was exploited. And then it became very apparent that they were breached. They didn't store all the data from 12 months ago. They couldn't find out how the hacker got in in the first place. So they couldn't plug the hole that clearly existed. Now, that's a, that is an edge case. You're not going to come across that every day. It's a real case, but it's about what value do you get out of storing that? Because it was a, it would have been a huge amount of data. They would have had to store it for at least nine months and then go back and, like you say, Simon, take the time to investigate it. Do you need it? It's a question of what value does it give to your business? With this, we have come to the end of the podcast. It was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. And I learned a lot from this conversation. Thank you, Andy, for your time. It was fun talking to you. Thank you, Simon. As usual, you added a lot of value to this discussion. Looking forward to having you both in another future podcast. Thank you very much.
Thank you. I learned thank a lot too. I always do. I want to thank Swim for supporting this podcast for quite some time now. Please visit www.swim.ai to learn more about their platform. Thank you, Swim.